Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. section that we're taking a look at here today, which is going to be covering the Torah reading of Pinchas, which basically covers uh, Numbers 25 through 29, picking up some verses on both ends, and covering also the passage that we were looking at there in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19, and also looking at that passage that we saw in John chapter 2. And you can see all the various studies that we've done over the years in this particular, these passages here at halal.info slash p41. Now, one of the things that we're going to focus on in particular here today is where we start off with on that first part in Numbers chapter 25, which is that, as we saw at the tail end of the Torah reading last week, we saw that there was this grisly scene, and you see the artist's depiction of it here with Pinchas, or Phineas, the priest, taking a spear and running it through two people who were doing something egregious. And as we've talked about in times past, this point of where it was happening was extremely egregious because this more likely than not was happening in the house of the Lord is where this was happening, not just some random tent off somewhere. This was the, because of where the places they were talking about at the the people uh, congregated at the at the front of the tabernacle. Because remember, when we were going through Leviticus, that where you have the layout of the tabernacle, there was the doorway, and the people would bring their offerings up to the doorway, and then the priesthood would take over from there. They would take your offering in and present your offering on the altar, which was just beyond the opening, and then take the blood on further into what was known as the holy place and then the most holy place there on the Day of Atonement. So where you see the people congregated there at the doorway, this was happening there in the likely the holy uh, confines. So definitely raise the the bar on the egregiousness of what was actually going on here in front of everybody yes so this was just not just some as if it wasn't bad enough um some unspeakable lasciviousness this was a in your face uh, affront to god um alex you have a comment or a question oh yeah yeah hold on hold on just a moment yeah 150 years after david had the whole land unified we're all with oh God. this is this is long before that oh, though. Uh, oh this is Jeze- this isn't jezebel oh no this this is back with moses here oh, okay. yeah this is still yeah, moses is way back yeah well, way way back was a short time after david had everything perfected <laughs> so it it did it anyway yes yeah, it, it slid downhill very fast after the time of David. 
Yes. Uh, yes, Christine, go ahead, please. Also, yeah. I'm sure if it's not in this teaching, it's been in a past teaching, that this is also um, reoccurring for the destruction of Shiloh when Eli was a priest and his two sons and what they were doing at the doorway with the, the women. Yeah. Yes. And I believe one of the sons was also Pintas. It's, okay. yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things you keep hearing the same pattern gets yeah. recurring over. Do we see it though? The first time you see the this type of a pattern, yes, is this? Oh, this before? is where where it, well, now. It, interestingly enough, you know where um, and uh, you could see there are a lot of parallels because with what happened to Aharon's other sons, Nadab and Bihu, that uh, where the fire came out from the Lord. Now, it's, it's very interesting, and we talked about it in that particular context, that these two priests, it, it could be argued because of what we'd seen in surrounding passages with they were participating with the great feast that the elders were having with the Lord up on the mountain. So it could be seen that perhaps they took this closeness and said, we want to get even closer. But like with Korach, who we read about just <laughs> in uh, just a couple passages back in the Torah here, um, Korach was saying, well, I'm close to the presence of God, but not close enough. I want to be closer. And how come you, Moshe, how come you, Aharon, get to be even closer and aren't we all holy? How can't we all just go up and approach the presence? So a very similar echoes that you heard with Nadab and Abihu there, the priests who were presenting strange fire, foreign fire. It was out of place fire for what their role was. And approaching and it's a continual theme that you keep hearing and actually we heard it again reminded in this particular passage reminding moshe hey you are soon going to die before you go into the land because you did not treat me as holy before all the people and that is the key reason why because you go back to the the uh, passage that we just read here recently about speak to the rock and indeed what he said before he hit the rock a lot of people focus on the hitting of the rock but the one of the aspects of it he said before is hey you rebels do is it going to be are we going to have to bring you in etc so this idea of, well, who is the one who's actually bringing, who brought the people out of the house of bondage, who is sustaining these people through the land, and who is actually going to be bringing them into the land of rest? Who is the one who's going to do that? Is it Moshe? Is it Aharon? Or is it the one who they work for? the one who made them holy, who set them apart. So, yeah, it, you're right. It's a, it's, a continual, it's a continual pattern that we see again and again. 
And like we've mentioned before with that phrase, the abomination of desolation that happens to the dwelling place of God on earth, that physical presence, that, that full manifestation of here the Lord puts his name and makes himself known, and that place the Lord moves out of in a very visible and uh, pretty obvious manner. Yes, Ichavod. Yes, the glory has departed. Ichabod. The glory has departed. And the question is, why has the glory departed? And the glory departed for a very, very specific reason. Was that the people, well, number one, were not... Uh, in a similar way with like Moses, not treating the Lord as holy. They were mixing together the practices of the nations around them, saying, hey, we should be all one you know, multicultural sort of approach. Let's bring in some interesting practices from the, the nations around us. Let's see how they worship their gods. Hey, some of those practices sound pretty good. Maybe we can mix together the... Um, the belief in God with those of the deities or so-called deities of the nations around. Uh, Larry, you have a comment or a question. Came almost directly from Bilam, yes. Well, he told them, this is how you'll get them. Yes. I'm glad, I'm glad you reminded us to put us back into context because we're talking about this Midian woman and that she was from a prominent family this was a direct shot across the bow, so to speak, of Israel. A direct attack against Israel from this nation, saying, and from this prophet that we were saying, and we saw in the, in the past passage that we looked at, that the Lord was indeed using him. One of the most important messianic prophecies about the Messiah about who Yeshua would be, came through Bilam. And yet, it was delivered in spite of Bilam. That Bilam did not get the oracle that he was given through his donkey. They basically say, hey, look, the Lord is actually governing where you're going. Do you actually understand who is commissioning you? Who is on top of any other deity that you're going to? We see that with the last passage that we were going over there with the oracles that Bilam was having. In his previous ones, before he got that, where it says the, the spirit came upon him and he started delivering his most important messages instead of going off to consult the oracles that he would do with any other deity. No, he didn't. He didn't consult those methods before. And then the Spirit spoke to him. Very interestingly similar to what we just saw in the Haftarah reading here about the message that was given you know, with that transfer of the prophets from one prophet to the other when that mantle would pass over is to what would be what would be the loud voice speaking would it be the big booming voice or would it be through 
still, small voice. And when finally Bilam was listening for that, then the Spirit of the Lord spoke. And he heard and he brought it forward. So, you know, we see getting back to our passage here today. This passage in Numbers 25, you know, it uh, gets to be quite a, quite a perplexing view that we see of this priest stepping up, grabbing a spear, and taking action. Now, when we take a look at the passage that leads up to our reading here today, just a few verses before it, in Numbers 25, verses 6 through 9, then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moshe and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Stop there for a moment. Why are they weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting? What had just happened? Yeah, the great uh, apostasy, this great immorality that had come through from Midian and that was going through. So the leaders were there at the, at the doorway of the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, weeping. Now remember what the prophet was talking about, where we get this term that comes over into Revelation, the mark of the beast and the mark of God on the foreheads. So, mark of the beast in the forehead and in the hand, but the mark of God only in the forehead. And you see in the prophets where it talks about, go through, talking about to the remnants there in the great city, go through the city and mark on the foreheads of those who weep and cry. For what? All of the stuff that's going on around them, stuff that was going on around them. So just like Lot there in Sodom, distressed, as it talks about in the apostolic writings, that he was distressed about what was going on around him. And just like with in Egypt, where the people of God were crying out, crying out for relief, for being in bondage. So then you had the leaders of Israel were there at the house, crying out, weeping for what was going on. So Pinchas, then as it continues on, so when Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aharon the priest, saw, saw it, he rose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died by the plague were 24,000. So in this passage here today, we get a census, a follow-up census. Here in Numbers 26, we get a census of all of the house of Israel. Now, when we compare that with the census that we see at the beginning of the book of Bimadbar or Numbers, Numbers 1 and 2, 
of the tallies of all the tribes at that point, you start noticing some interesting differences in the populations. Now, remember in this passage is talking about who is being counted with the second census here in Numbers 26. Who is being counted? The second generation. So when you're thinking about, okay, we are wanting to, your next generation hopefully is bigger than the one before it, if you're going to have population growth. Oh, look at the second generation. The number of them, the total number is smaller. It's it's about about 1,820 people smaller among those tribes that were counted. Those tribes are counted 601,730, smaller than originally 603,550. So when you see what some of the population drops are between the first generation and the second generation, look at Shimon. They went from 59,300 to 22,200. That's more than half. They lost between the first generation and the second generation. So, you know, you, when, you're, when you're thinking about what happens and your handoff from one generation to the next, oh my goodness, look at that. But when you see like the tribe of Levi, they grew a little bit, 700 which when you think of about 40 years, yeah, that's, that's a pretty small percentage growth of it. But at least it was in going in the positive direction. So you're saying, wow, the tribe of Levi, what a wonder, wonderful thing that they're actually growing. But you can see that there were certain tribes that took a particular hit. And we see later on in Israel's history that there were certain tribes that uh, suffered some incredible moral failings and lost, yeah, lost some uh, tremendous numbers of people. So that is a very sobering perspective of what happens when we talk about one plague and another plague that happened during the wanderings in the desert, how much of an impact that can have from one generation to the next. So then... We, we get back to this uh, thorny question. You know, Pinchas, he took a stand here. Well, should we take a stand? And that is a very important question as we look at this because on one hand you could say from the, the, standpoint, the standpoint of do you take action or not? And then there are some people that say, well, you're just contributing to vigilantism. If you're saying, well, wasn't Pinchas a vigilante? He just stood up and took action of it. Uh, Larry, you had a comment or a uh, question over here? When Messiah took action. When, when, when he took action in the temple. Ah. But it was non-lethal. Mm-hmm. And we don't know if he really ever struck anybody. He turned over the tables and he waved this thing around. Looked mm. like a madman, so they got <laughs> out of his way. But it's so maybe it's different, you know. It's, taking action is yeah. a relative thing. Well, he didn't take action that time. 
But the way he's described in, uh, ap- uh, in the apocalyptic literature, both in the prophets and in the book of Revelation, especially with the whole thing of a two-edged sword, um, that picture of, you know, <laughs> when they describe it as, please hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Have the rocks cover us. So, with your station, right? Yes, the station, indeed. He's the, he's the king. And we're not. Yes, indeed. He is the king and we're not, which is very, it's a very key point to what we're going to be looking at today. Yes, Rose. I just want to say, uh, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And then God said, I did not call you to fit in. I called you to stand out. Yes. So sometimes standing out here uh, can, see, can feel pretty lonely. Yeah. Uh, so it's the to be part of the world, to be in the world, but not be part of the world. It's quite challenging, and uh, and for me personally, the way I get through it is that I walk with God every day. Yes, He is. He He guides my path. He said, "Don't look to the left or to the right." He said, "Look up, because your redemption draws nigh." Mm. I mean, yes, uh, Deborah. Um, you know, what I could see with Phineas was is that um, I don't think he even thought. He just reacted. And I think sometimes we do that, too. Like, we react without thinking, just like Moses did. You rebels! You know what I mean? Because sometimes, and you know what's happening today is the world is training us that if you speak for God, you're a hater. Oh, you don't like those people. You know, we are slowly becoming the enemy we are being painted as the, the intolerant and you know when we speak for god there's something wrong with us and so you know um sometimes you can't help it where you just say something but i think the world is training us not to react not to say anything and today uh that sin is alive and well with the pornography and their television and the commercials and the shows that the there are so many good godly men that are addicted to pornography mm-hmm. and it is that sin that is still taking down even our young young men because of this this sin so i mean when i went to the junior college there was nothing in place for to help anybody in the counseling service with pornography mm-hmm. and it was it's rampant in the churches and you know i my heart a friend of mine we were talking about it because i don't feel bad i do i feel bad because it's it's unawares unsuspecting because you think oh well i'm just looking it's not it's what it does to you emotionally physically what you expect it's unreal and a lot of good men are are dealing with this very thing and so you know how do we as a people help remedy that and i i think maybe sometimes bringing it up when it is uncomfortable that there has to be a place for men to go there has to be a place that you don't have to hide and slink around and say, you know, this, you know, and I've seen a couple guys c- confess and say, I said, I'm proud of you to say that because women, it's women's fault too, because the way that we dress so provocative and the way that we look and the way that we act, you know, so that we're no different than those women prancing out there, you know, doing the same exact thing of the women of Midian. So mm. I do a prayer for our, our men because it's not something you can see. You don't know that it's happening, mm. you know? Indeed. Yeah. And, you know, you, you bring up the very, the very interesting point because you think that these things don't have a huge, huge impact. But 
a couple of examples that we have of what they can happen. Like we were shocked at looking at these charts of the census between one generation and the next. Well, look at what has happened over time with Japan. Japan is at least 20 years ahead of us in this, in this realm. Their population is headed downhill fast, fast from one generation to the next. They don't want relationships anymore. They got so saturated that they're just not even interested in, in relationships anymore. And that is starting to happen now here in the United States and in other developed nations where you're starting to see the decline in the birth rate, the decline in marriages, etc. Um, see, first off, uh, Sean, then Alex, and then Jennifer. Yes, go ahead, please. Yeah, I just want to comment what Deb was talking about. As far as us men, we have to take accountability and responsibility. We have to, within the side ourselves, say, enough. I will serve the Lord and take massive action. There is help. There are things that we can do. Um, I have what's called Covenant Eyes. It's a porn blocking website that's on all of my uh, devices. So, you know, you, there's things to do, but you've got to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and take action, you know, to those who are in any isms addiction. Yeah. And where a service like that comes from is uh, from the book of Job, where one of his things that he was saying is, I, you know, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust upon young women. So, yes. Um, I wasn't sure where to insert this, but my wife and I saw that uh, premiere in Napa of uh, James Cabez or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the uh, God's children are not for sale. That's right. And, uh, of course, as most of us know, we're realistic-minded. The U.S. is the largest customer for kidnapped children. Uh, so we're killing them, we're taking them, we're doing things to them. Yes. And that's our world. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, and we just, in the past couple of years, we've lost track of a quarter million children who came into this country, and we have no idea where they went. So, uh, yes, Jennifer, please go ahead. You know, uh, as we discuss this very important topic, um, I'm reminded of a time when in my country, some of you know about Idi Amin. Oh, Idi Amin. Age. Yes, you remember that? Mm -hmm. He had all kinds of atrocities that he committed against humanity across the globe, not just in Uganda, but he was just, any country he would feel like attacking, either verbally or physically, he would just go ahead and do it. So anyway, uh, so I was a teenager, and then so many other governments came after he, the, war, the war that overthrew him. I, I kept seeing all kinds of atrocities committed by men in uniform. And at that time, women were not allowed to join the forces. The only force that could be uh, involved in the police. Then when I grew up to an age that you, I could make a decision in one of the governments, I thought, maybe I should join the, the military. And then I can probably, because of my level of education, when I join, I'll be an officer at a level where I can bring some discipline to some of these soldiers, because I saw how they were treating people, especially women. I was a victim of some of that treat, mistreatment. And I was <clears throat> determined, I said, God, I wish, but they, but they didn't allow women to join the military. 
So as I had that, like we talk about the zeal, with that zeal, the Lord gave me a solution. He told me, if you pray, my daughter, I'm going to do exactly what you asked me to do. So that zeal rose up in me, the, the holy anger. I fell one night on a rug in the living room. I cried to the Lord, Lord, deliver us from these governments that are ruling by the gun. They were raping pregnant women. Open, take the babies, slash. I mean, they could just do anything with the gun, with the bassinet that is attached to the gun. At roadblocks, they could stop and take any beautiful women from the bus. You leave them here, you go on. Or they could take any guy who did not cooperate, give them money. You leave him there, you see him being tortured, you have to go on your way. I mean, we saw all kinds of things. They would come to your house and take any electronics that looked good, take it. I was so tired of seeing this. So the, all that had was in, embedded in my stomach. So when I prayed, came out through intercession. And that's how I learned how to intercede for nations. But then from that night, the Lord spoke to me. He said, I'm going to change this government. When I, I woke up from that vision, I said, Lord, they seem to be so strong, so established. How is this going to happen? He told me, trust me, my daughter. You continue with intercession. You're going to see. I'm talking about the month of January. By June, that government was gone. Wow. Praise God. And everything that was going to happen at national level, every change towards that end, the Lord would show me. And he would tell me, now you pray that this happens. Because he would show me this is going to happen. Now you pray it happens. So with the force of prayer, these things catapulted into their actual departing from power. And it was amazing that what prayer can do. So he told me, he said, I knew your heart. You felt that by joining the military, you could bring a change. But I knew better, my daughter. <laughs> you just joined my army oh, yeah. of intercession. And that army of intercession will bring down anything, any man. From that day I know, I don't care how powerful anybody is. God will bring them down if we only pray. So he says, our weapons of warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to pulling down every stronghold. In the book of Luke, he says, behold, I give you power to trade over serpents and scorpions and over all, not some, but all the power of the enemy, and that nothing shall by any means harm you. Because of that intercession, some people in my country, I think they recognize it spiritually, they thought I was an enemy of this government. I was, not a, I was a friend of the people. I just wanted the people to be free from oppression. So twice, I faced arrest. One I time, Biden in prayer. Yeah, one time I was arrested. But the Lord made sure I was freed. Another time they came to arrest me, they couldn't see my home. They looked and looked and How can you fail to see your police? You can't find my address? The Lord blinded them. They couldn't find my home. So I'm trying to share with you. Children of God, whether you are one or two or three, you are so more powerful than an army. I'm telling you because I've proved it. 
If they don't have to see you, they will not see you. If it's time for you to go, they will see you and kill you, find that you're done. But if your job is not yet done, they will never see you, they will never be able to arrest you. They will never be able to. I've faced gunpoint, somebody trying to shoot and the gun will not shoot. How does that happen? Until they give up, they are sweating, they give up this, go, now go. So I go. We have a mighty God. Amen. What you see in the Bible can happen today. Because they wanted to arrest the Lord Yeshua. And he just walked out of their way. How did that happen? A whole mob against them. What happened to us too? Here in Santa Rosa, you go on your faces, fasting and prayer. Go on your faces and call upon the Lord and bind his forces. In the physical realm, you will see things happen. Just take your time and do that. Nothing. I don't care who it is, how powerful he looks. They're nothing to the Lord. Mm. Amen. Amen indeed. Yes. Yes. Not by strength, nor by power, but by your spirit. Indeed. Yeah, so when we're seeing the response that Pinchas had, the folk, this couple that was coming in to just destroy the moral heart of Israel, you know, they, they came in and they brought, and that word there of karav, that's the same word from what we get for karban or offering. Remember from the, uh, the book of Leviticus, the thing that approaches? Well, they were approaching all right. They were approaching the presence of God, but it was not to say, thank you, Lord, for delivering us out of the house of bondage. No, it was to get in between the creator of heaven and earth and the people to Yes, yeah, they were, they were cutting the connection, trying to cut the connection between God and the people. So what did Pinchas do? Those three things. He saw. He saw it. Ra'a. He rose. Kum. And he also took, took the spear. Lakach. He seized it. He seized the spear. So when you see those, those three actions that he took, of seeing, standing, and then seizing it. Now, it's interesting that that, that verb that we have that's translated arise or, you know, tkum. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the scriptures, it's translated of istemi. Istemi comes over and we see that in the apostolic writings in a passage like John chapter 8, verse 44, where Yeshua was saying to those leaders of the time period who were challenging him, and he said, you are of your father the devil, and you do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So that istemi is talking about 
and it's used as a as a description of standing and that word to stand both as you see it reflected in the greek and also in hebrew is about to set up to establish in its place because that word kum is also talking about with establishing the covenant to stand up the covenant before the people like a pillar so when you see what later on israel was battling against and it says that they had problems with these sacred pillars well that was what they were standing up that's what was arising amongst the people monuments to their devotion to somebody else monuments to devotion to someone else so like when you say in, in a family that would be like you know you're you're in a marriage and you've got pictures not only of your ex but of your mistresses just up on the walls and all over the place you've got pictures of your other beloveds all over the place and that's what these sacred pillars were like throughout the land just a complete affront to God, the one who had taken them out from the house of bondage, carried them through the wilderness, delivering them into the land, and then also a light to all the nations. And what were the chief evangelists, the chief ambassadors of the kingdom of God doing? Saying, well, eh, he might be one of many. We can take him or leave him. He can be like just any of these other deities around us no big deal just mixing it all together we can have the creator of heaven and earth and molech the one that we're tossing our children into so both of them can work together one big happy family all together yes after all did god really say or one way we've talked about in the past from genesis 3 that could also be translated even if god said don't do this then who cares just do it anyway because you want that access to knowledge you want that access to the knowledge of good and bad uh yes uh, christine you have a comment or a question so last night i was um walking my puppy and there's a house of uh, worship uh, in a different denomination and I went and sat and I looked up on a they had a pole uh, around stones and, and these two benches and I I already knew the vein of the of the church right they make it very clear they have little signs out and stuff so I knew the vein of the church. It wasn't coming as a surprise. But just now when you say it, the first thing that caught my eye when I was sitting there, I've never sat there before, lived there for years, was there's a pole, and I recognized the Hebrew writing. And I read the sheen, you know, and I started, was reading it. But then you look around, and it's in all different religions, right, on the same pole. And I just said, okay, Bella, we're going to just leave this little pillar and walk across the street. So when you said that, it's like, yes. Yes, it is very much here. Yeah, so when you're seeing this 
this uh, correction that the Lord gave to Moses that was saying, you're not coming into land because you did not set me apart as holy, as separate, as different, as being the crucial lifeline for the people. That is what the issue was. That basically, you know, you're, you're intimating to the people that, hey, we, these men, are going to lead you into the land. That was the problem with the first generation. They thought, just like we read just a, a few chapters back, they had their representatives go into the land. And they got a bad report back. And that bad report, as you recall, is walls too high, people too big, we can't do it. We're going to die in the process. Well, yes, if it is by our might, by our power, yeah, you may definitely fail and likely will fail. And they got a, a quick lesson that, yes, they would fail by trying to go up and do it themselves. But the kingdom of the Lord, quite, quite different. So as we go on here and we take a look at this, where we also see, if you were to take back then this word, istemi there in Greek, where we get that uh, word that's translated from kum for stand. Some places where you see it then used elsewhere in the scriptures in, from the Septuagint, you see a passage where it's used in Zechariah eleven twelve, which is in itself a messianic prophecy. I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And this is quoted in the Gospels there, Matthew 26 and 27, related to the 30 pieces of silver that Yeshua was betrayed for. 30 pieces of silver, indeed. And... What it's, what, it's, what it's talking about with weighed out is, interestingly, shekel, which we get shekel from. That shekel. The word strictly means weight. I mean, it is a weight measure. And interestingly enough, a cognate of shekel is tekel, which might start making you think of something. John, uh, Daniel chapter 5, verses 25 and 28. The per, this proverbial handwriting on the wall, well, this is the actual handwriting on the wall. And when you had there, the Persians were parting it up with the stuff, stuff, the furniture, the holy furniture the holy items and symbols from the Mishkan, from the tabernacle, from the temple at that point, that they had taken off into Babylon and then Persia inherited when they took over Babylon. They're parting it up with these very items. But then there came, during their partying, this hand that just started writing on the wall. And it wrote, now, this is the inscription that was written out, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Uparsen, which is a Hebrew phrase. Now, this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. 
Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Peretz, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. And interestingly enough, all three of these words are what we find in our passage here today of Pinchas, of the Torah portion. Mene, number, tekel, weighed, or to stand. Kum is a, you could say, tekel, shekel is a synonym for kum and used often together with that. So standing up is also weighing. If you are standing up for something, you are being weighed against something. You're laying weight on it. So thus, you've been numbered and weighed on the scales and found to be deficient. Paretz. Paretz, we might remember, is one of those sons and one of those families that we saw in the, in the census here today. And Paretz, there, you might remember one of the twins going back there into Genesis, that idea of division or a splitting apart. So thus you've got the idea of division between one and the other. And you see as we go on here, another passage where Istemi now shows up in the apostolic writings is in this benediction in the letter from Yehuda or Jude in verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Yeshua Mashiach our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. So when we think about that the Lord is going to stand us up in the presence. Stand us up in the presence of the Lord. What, because of how fantastic we are? No. We're, you know, I might recall as we're going through in the letter of Romans right now, and one of the great lessons that you get in those beginning chapters as you go up through chapter 8 is that you are, we get this 50-cent word, justified justified means declared not guilty declared not guilty in god's eyes and because his love and mercy endures forever and that's when we see from the new covenant prophecy in jeremiah 31 31 through 34 you see that it is because he has covered over our iniquities and remembered them no more so thus when god sees us because of what god has taken from us and heaped it upon the messiah so thus when he sees us he does not see those sins those transgressions and those iniquities anymore does not see us like that anymore so that's one of the things we want to think about with this back to this question of like with Pinchas, do we stand up? Do we take a stand? Now, it's very interestingly enough, we just celebrated the 4th of July. And the 4th of July commemorates 
the Declaration of Independence when it was signed, finally signed. And a part of that was to put up the declaration of, hey, there are some things that just cannot go on any longer. And that Declaration of Independence eventually resulted in the writing, you know, good almost decade later, I'm finishing up, of, or actually over a decade later, by 1791, of the Constitution of the United States. And then with the Bill of Rights to that, with the First Amendment to the Constitution, which is there about the redress of government, about freedom of religion, about freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, those freedoms all together. Yes. So one of the things that those founders of our particular country had read about that was a key part of what led to the Declaration of Independence and then later on into the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, a key thing that they had read was a book that was written by a Scottish minister in 1644. It was called Lex Rex, which in Latin is law and prince or law and ruler. And what it laid out there is that do what do you have in your right of self-defense? What do you have in that? And when do you take that? And this minister drew from David's history in battling against Saul, or I should say when Saul was battling against David there in David's early years. This is where these three principles came from. The first of which is the first step that you must take is what David took. Remember with Jonathan or Jonathan, Saul's son, what he did in pleading his case before Saul? He pled his case through Jonathan, through Jonathan. Pleaded his case. So the first thing you do before you try anything else and try to kick it up another notch is you pursue the redress of the ruler. That's just why the First Amendment exists. A key freedom in there is the freedom of redress of your grievances. So whenever there is a grievance that you ever have with any sort of tyrant, and that is a tyrant defined also by this particular minister as being someone who's trying to come between the people and their freedom to be able to worship God is a key aspect of that. The first thing you do is redress, just like David did. Appeal, petition, say, in a similar way that you saw Abraham with God there for Sodom. With that one, he was appealing to the all-just one and saying, shall not the Lord of justice, do right in this. But then you also see in the redress that these particular other leaders did, like Daniel, as he was to Nebuchadnezzar, to Darius, after him, trying to appeal to them, saying, hey, 
you should turn back from this and do something right. You're better than this. Live up to your greatness, basically, and do the right thing. But then the second aspect of it, if you have gone that far and it doesn't work, what did David do after that? Run. Flee. And we see that is the history of the people of God. You know, every Thanksgiving we celebrate what? The Turkey Day. <laughs> it is about Thanksgiving, and it was a commemoration that pilgrims landed there, 1620, there in the, off the Massachusetts coast. But they were coming from persecution, and they first started out in Holland. <laughs> <laughs> they had to go a couple of different places because they were getting pursued and they fled from one to the next to the next. And you see, Yeshua also said, hey, when you see these things or the, you see the forces closing in on the city, what do you do? Flee, get out of the city, run, run. So once you have run, Perhaps there is no ability to run. Then what do you do? You resist. First, you try by just, as they would say, throwing your cogs into the wheel or throwing things into to disrupt activity. Martin Luther King Jr. did that. Gandhi did that of just making society grind to halt until people notice what is going on. Then, after you have exalt, exhausted all things, then it is like the Maccabees. You're pushed into that corner. You've got no other recourse on it. But the point is, is and that's this, what this minister put up, is that you've got to exhaust everything before you ever get to that last stage of stage three where you have to resist. So a lot of people today are, things are, you have tyrant forces starting to raise their head in this country like they did in Germany and like they've done in so many other countries here today in this world. What can you do before you you could say proverbially push it to 11 or send it all the way to um, the most disastrous course you can take. There's a lot of other things you can do. If things are going wrong in your, in your local community, this is not ancient Rome here. You can go down and redress government, redress your school system, redress all kinds of things and work with it, even in California. Even in California, you can do with those things. But as the pattern with the people of God is gone, there may be a time where you know, that ability to redress just gets totally shut off. Then what? Flee. And then if you cannot flee, then that comes the third stage. But... What have you done before you get to that third stage? Each of us, when we're thinking about standing and whether the day of the Lord comes upon us now 
or sometime in future generations? What is it that we've gone from step one, step two, step three before that particular time period shows up? So with that lesson from Pinkas here today, we can say that, yeah, see, stand up, and then seize, seize the day. Yes, seize the day. So that's where we'll close things out here today. Any last uh, thoughts as we uh, close out? All right. Larry, uh, were there any uh, steps you think that we should uh, also consider? I didn't. I didn't. Step. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think Pika skipped a few steps. Oh, yeah. yes. What, uh, what, what steps would you suggest as well? Well, he didn't, he didn't flee. He didn't warn anybody or anything. He just picked up the spear and went off. And oh, yes. Okay. Yes. In that, about uh, sk skipping those particular steps on that. Well, the thing was, when, when you're saying, re remember like when we first started with the book of Numbers, and they're talking about the layout of everything, of all the tribes and where their camps were and where the place was. What was the, what was the job of the levy and those families of levy, priesthood, plus all the other families of levy around there? What was their job? To keep the stranger or... Out of the, out of the most holy. Yes, to yes. keep the stranger out of the most holy. This is broken down to the point where you've had not only this cavorting that happened with Midian, but to the point where this was happening there right into the center of everything. So, you know, we don't know the full story of it, but that whole protective barrier there had just completely broken down to the point where this was like the fire coming out from the holy place at that particular point. So the point is, is that just like you were saying earlier, that's the, the purview of the king of kings to wield the sword from his mouth for the people to want to have the, the rocks fall on them, to hide them from it. That's beyond us. And the role that Pinchas was in is not our role or what we're called into. But our lessons that we have from from scripture is what is it that we can do at these various stages leading up to that because there are those that are called on to stand in the gap and as we see like in the book of revelation where you have those two witnesses they're going to stand in the gap and also fall but then also be brought back and it's the same word God is going to histemi them to stand them back up again into the place to be that final witness for that final generation to say, hey, you've got two witnesses here, which means it's an established thing by heaven that this can't continue any longer. This way that the world is going is just not going to continue any longer. And at that point, heaven is going to put an end to this way of order and the king of kings is going to step in the prince of peace is going to step in and 
end the conflict and the strife and the reign of the adversary. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.